Hello and welcome to episode 155 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. How are you, Ian? I'm doing well, Jason. How are you? How are your travels, sir? Good. First real business travel in two years and one week, but who's counting? Not you, obviously. Tell the folks at home where you are. I am in Nice, France, I'm told. Is it nice? Uh, yeah, it's pretty nice. Right. It'd be nicer yeah. in season where like, there's a lot of people and things are <laughs> open, but right now in mid-March, it's uh, colder than New York, actually. Huh. I would not have expected that. Yeah. Flights were good and all that fun stuff? Oh, God. Uh, yeah, sure. I flew... <laughs> um, I chose to fly Delta from JFK through De Gaulle down to Nice. Uh, the Delta flight was on a two-year-old A33900neo, which I was excited about because it's a new aircraft, obviously. And uh, this was Sunday night. And as I'm walking to the gate, I get a notification on my phone saying, snow expected to start in 15 minutes, expected to end in 25 minutes. And sure enough, as I'm settling into my seat, it snows intensely for about 15 minutes, no big deal, no accumulation, but it was just long enough to require every single aircraft going out for the rest of the night to require de-icing, which was not a quick process. Especially when it's kind of surprise de-icing and things yeah. aren't really set up at the moment. Yeah, it was surprise, surprise snow. It wasn't in the forecast. It, it came and, and went, no big deal. If you weren't flying an aircraft, you probably wouldn't have even really cared or noticed. But I guess it takes some time for the airports or really the terminals or contractors in this situation to spin up the de-icing operation at JFK. And it took a good while. I'm pretty sure they were sharing one truck for the entire Delta outbound operation. But thankfully, it was only about an hour and a half of delay, which made the connection at De Gaulle, which is always not a great experience to begin with, much more stressful. But I made it. And then my connecting flight was delayed 30 minutes boarding because of, uh, I don't know, reasons that were not communicated to anyone for any reason. But I made it here. Didn't miss any connections. Everything was fine. And I'm here. Well, good. I'm glad you made it. And I hope you're having a nice time. This week's show kind of picks up where the previous two episodes left off. We won't spend the entire show this week talking about the situation in Ukraine and Russia as well, as things haven't really changed a great deal in the civil aviation portion of the conversation. And we'll catch up on some news that we've you know, kind of been putting off, I guess, for, for the past couple of weeks. We're also talking this week with Andy Taylor of Nats, which is the UK's air navigation service provider. Andy is the great job title, Director of Solutions oh. for Digital Towers. Yes. And gets things done. Uh, he does indeed. So we're going to talk to him about what he's getting done as far as digital towers are concerned and how they might not be exactly what you think they are anymore. Uh, so we'll have that conversation a little bit later in the episode. We'll start this week with where we kind of left off last week, which was a question about what was going to happen to all of the aircraft operated by Russian airlines that are registered or leased and registered, leased from lessors outside of Russia and registered outside of Russia, which is a good chunk of the Russian civil aviation fleet, especially the newer aircraft that are operating for airlines like Aeroflot and some of the new-ish aircraft that are operating for some other airlines. So it's the 16th of March, Wednesday now, over the weekend on the 12th of March, the Bermuda Civil Aviation Authority provisionally suspended all certificates of airworthiness of those aircraft operating under the Article 8.3 BIS agreement between Bermuda and the Russian Federation. So let's pause here and talk a little bit about what the 8.3 BIS agreement is, and then we'll talk about why any of this matters. We mentioned it, I, I think, two weeks ago in the context of Steve Giordano, who we've had on the program multiple times, who operates Nomadic Aviation, which is a 
basically a, a taxi service for lessers. He goes and collects aircraft and brings them to where they need to be. And his explanation on Twitter that, that we linked to goes into kind of the ins and outs. But the overarching context is that these agreements are between this bilateral agreement in this particular context is between Bermuda and the Russian Federation, which delegates certain tasks to the state of operation being Russia from the state of registration, which is Bermuda, and allows the aircraft to remain on the Bermudan registry. Bermuda issues the certificates of airworthiness, which basically say this plane is fit to fly. On the 12th of March at 2359 UTC, they revoked those certificates. Those planes were not fit to fly and should not have continued in the air. That is not what's happened. The aircraft have not all been grounded. They've continued to fly. The jets, based on a law that was passed by the Russian parliament and signed by Vladimir Putin on Monday, the 14th of March, provides a way for Russian operators to take their not airworthy aircraft on a canceled certificate of airworthiness on the canceled registrations and move them over to the Russian registry. And they've begun doing that in earnest. Yeah. And when we mean not airworthy, of course, we mean paperwork-wise. These aircraft, I'm sure, are most likely all physically and mechanically sound, but the uh, paperwork, which as we discussed in the last couple episodes, is an extremely important part of the puzzle. Exactly. Yeah. It's not to say that these aircraft have become unsafe overnight and are you know miraculously going to fall out of the sky because they've canceled the registration. That's not what it is. What it is is that there's no longer that paper chain that says, we have done everything we are supposed to do to keep these aircraft in the condition that we are supposed to keep them in so that they can continue to safely fly. That chain of evidence has not been broken. And so a lot of these aircraft, and we're talking nearly 700 aircraft that are operating for Russian airlines on or formerly on the Bermudan registry, which is the VP or VQ prefix. Those are being moved over to the Russian registry. And who knows what happens to them long-term, which is the kind of the question that we talked about last week a bit more in depth. So the things that we kind of previewed last week, those have come to pass this week. Yeah. And what we do know is that hopefully when all of this ends soon, these aircraft, it's going to be very difficult to reintegrate them into the international aviation system. It's just they're rogue aircraft at this point. And, and the international community can't vouch for their safety at this point. We don't know what's happening with them. They're operating without insurance without proper registration. It's crazy to think that these aircraft are just, by all intents and purposes, gone, but not gone. Gone, but not yet. Gone from the pool of available global aircraft. And especially as far as lessers are concerned, that becomes a big problem for them without even getting into how they recuperate their losses or, or any of that. It's just the, the physical assets are are unavailable. What's interesting to me, looking at which aircraft are flying and which aircraft are not, and which aircraft have been brought over to the new Russian registry as quickly as they can, and which are kind of still sitting in stasis, all of the newer aircraft that Aeroflot has taken delivery that are on lease and on the Bermuda registry, nearly all of those have remained on the ground, which I find very interesting. I don't have any idea about why that is. It could be the fact that they're just not necessary at the moment because those are the larger aircraft, the 777-300ERs, A350s. Maybe they're not necessary at the moment given the Aeroflot has become a domestic fleet. So maybe that's the case. But that's just one of the things that I've been you know, kind of seeing as I go through and, and try and keep on top of this. Yeah, there must be some sort of rhyme or reason or, or logic to what aircraft they're using, since it's a wide range of leasing companies that these aircraft are acquired from. So maybe there is some logic to it that they, they want to use some aircraft and not others, but Aeroflot doesn't really have all that many flights to operate right now. On today's date, March 16th, they only have 335 flights loaded in the global schedule, many of which I'm sure will end up not actually operating. And internationally, they're down to 13, most of which is Belarus. There's a couple of flights to 
Istanbul, and that's that's it. So they uh, really don't need a large chunk of that fleet operating right now. Yeah, and that's the other thing is that they're where they can operate and what they need to operate are very very much limited compared to a month ago. That's certainly something to keep in mind. Yeah, and you mentioned the 350 not flying. It's not even in the schedule actually right now. It's, I think it's been removed entirely. So there's definitely some behind the scenes thinking about what aircraft they want to keep flying and what they can uh, put on the ground for an extended period. Yeah. One of the questions that we fielded a few times and that I've seen other people get asked, is there a way to on star or low jack where you just turn them off remotely. No, the answer is no. That was a question that we got a few times over the past Yeah, few for weeks. me, I asked that question. Did you? Yeah, a couple of days oh, ago on okay. Twitter. Well, I said, These airplanes are so complex. They require updates. They have SATCOM links. They, they are connected aircraft. I hope this isn't something that's possible because I, I certainly wouldn't want this to be done improperly or by accident, but it's not out of the realm of technological possibilities that these aircraft could be bricked while on the ground. There's no built-in no. way to do it. There, there's no feature. It's not a feature. No. It's I'm not sure like with, with OnStar with where, where if a car is stolen, they can remotely safely pull it over. Right. That'd be something. Right. No, that's not how it goes. But yeah, I, I just wanted to, to put that out there. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about, which has been kind of of interest this week, at least questions that we've gotten either on social media or, or people have emailed us, is the, the increased number of Russian aircraft that are still flying squawking 7700. So 7700 is the internationally recognized squawk for general emergency. And we've talked about this in past episodes, but to recap, there's a four-digit octal code that air traffic controllers assign an aircraft that creates a unique identification on the air traffic controller screen. Before departure, air traffic controllers will provide departure clearance and they will say squawk one, two, three, four, or whatever. And there are a few generally around the world, there are a few generally standard squawks. And in some countries, those vary uh, for like general aviation, 1200 or 2000. And then there are three that are ICAO standards, 7500, which is the aircraft is being hijacked. 7600, the aircraft's communication systems don't work. They can't talk on the radio to air traffic control. And 7700, which is general emergency. If you squawk Either of those three, 75, 76, 77, air traffic control is notified immediately. You become red lights start going off, bells, whistles, you know, all of those things. So air traffic controllers know that that particular aircraft needs special attention. In the past 10 days or so, a larger number of Russian aircraft have started squawking 7700. I say all this to say, I don't know why. Looking into it, don't have any good leads yet. No one I've talked to so far has any concrete information about why this would be happening. It's not entirely unusual for certain Russian aircraft to squawk 7700 on a regular basis. I'm looking at the Superjet fleet, for instance. It has a larger proportion of squawk 7700s per flight than. I think nearly any other aircraft besides Cessna 182. Yeah, that checks out. <laughs> and so it's not entirely unusual, but it has happened outside of the Superjet fleet and to more aircraft operated by Russian Airlines. I don't know exactly what's happening. I don't know why, but it is something certainly that I'm interested to find out if there is a reason and what that reason might be. So stay tuned on that particular front. Let's take a break here, and we'll switch over to our conversation with Andy Taylor of Nats. And when we come back after chatting with Andy, we'll run through a bunch of news that we've been letting sit for a couple of weeks while we really focused on Ukraine and Russia. So stay with us, and we'll be right back with Andy.
Joining us now is Andy Taylor, the Chief Solutions Officer for Digital Towers at NATS, which is the UK's air navigation service provider, as well as a pretty forward-looking organization from all that I've been reading about you, Andy, and all that you've been doing. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about it today. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here and hope that I can give you some uh, interesting insights to what we're doing now and uh, for the future. So we always like to talk about people having interesting job titles and yours is both interesting and I feel like it it sets you up for having to really deliver. I mean, you are the chief solutions officer. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, I think it's less what's in a title and more what you do that you're judged by anyway. But yeah, I mean, my role, I am an ex-air traffic controller. So I've worked at many tower and, and approach radar units for NATS. And I've also worked all around the world uh, in consultancy roles uh, and supporting Eurocontrol. I worked for them for three years um, on a detachment from, from Nats as well. So I, I've got a very operational background. And my role actually is in terms of working with end users, airports, ANSPs, and getting the perfect solution for them to meet their operational needs. So having that operational background is is kind of uh, where my uh, solutions kind of come from. And I'm supported by a a very strong technical team, both within Nats uh, Technical Services and also uh, within Searage Technologies, who are owned by Nats, but basically continue to be an independent and the leading supplier of digital towers around the world. So digital towers, let's talk about what we mean when we say digital tower, because the initial concept of the digital tower and what you're working on now has kind of evolved over time, hasn't it? Yeah, that's true. I think a lot of people, as soon as you talk about digital towers, immediately think about remote towers and small airfields in really remote locations and and being able to provide services from sort of centralized locations. And that absolutely is, you know, part of digital towers, but it isn't uh, the be all and end all. Uh, for me, a digital tower basically is where we install uh, camera arrays at an airport that provides camera data, panoramic views, which basically takes the the views out of the window, which effectively are the analog data that air traffic controllers use every day, digitizes that such that we can display that either at the airport, we can share it with other stakeholders at the airport, including the airport operations team, airport operations centers. But we can also augment it so we can add other system data, integrate and display that. And what we've been doing most uh, recently with Searage has also been adding artificial intelligence. So digital towers are basically a way of providing a much more powerful air traffic management solution for airports, which can be accessed by the airport operators and other airport stakeholders. So it's, it's quite something beyond just remote towers. So when you say you're adding a layer of digitization and then adding, I guess, different layers of technology on that, mm-hmm. the cameras thing, that seems to make you know perfect sense is a good place to start. But then you mentioned artificial intelligence. I was wondering if you could expand on what those layers are. Yeah. Well, like I say, the camera bit really just takes the analog data. And actually, I would suggest that around about 70% of, of the data that air traffic controllers use is analog at the moment, looking out the window. So that's a significant amount of digitization just by that camera data. But artificial intelligence, where we, we train models to use that image, uh, video image data, and also to use other data sources, be that radar. And recently, we've been doing quite a lot of work in the last two years during the pandemic of voice recognition, which again, may not seem like a you know, an unusually new subject, but it certainly is in aviation and particularly where that that voice data is broadcast over the radio from pilots uh, rather than just the air traffic control users speaking to um, to the voice recognition like, um, you know, sort of Siri or, or other kind of uh, voice recognition on, on your phone, for example. So that AI is basically taking lots of different data sources, processing it in real time, and then providing key outputs. Now, what we tend to do is we're focused on specific problem areas. Now, that basically means that the AI model can be trained quite efficiently in recognizing situations and being able to provide prompts for operators to to take on board. For, For us, definitely, this is about enabling the humans in the in the, the operation to be able to operate more efficiently, more safely, 
because of the support that we can give them through a trained artificial intelligence model. It, it's, I think a lot of people are worried about AI. It, you know, it's suddenly this sort of, you know, is there some kind of robot controller? But it's not that at all. It's basically, for us, it's you can program an algorithm and that can take a considerable length of time. In our experience, and particularly the Searage team that I work with, who've been working on, on AI for seven years or so, probably longer, uh, they realized early on that the using artificial intelligence machine learning um, techniques, they could program algorithms more effectively and more quickly than traditional programming methods. And when we deploy these AI models, as we have done in our Heathrow lab, and we're looking at uh, deployments elsewhere now, those AI models are effectively trained with real data, but we train the model and then deploy it as a closed model. So it's not the kind of AI that continues to learn while it's in situ, but it does mean, like I say, that we can get that uh, programming effectively and rapidly deployed. So that's that's our approach to, to AI and digital towers right now. So some of the problems that I'm thinking about as an AI solution being helpful, I'm thinking about, you know, taxiing and being able to make sure that aircraft are, are well-spaced on areas of the airfield that might not be as visible to the tower itself, or things like runway exits and turnoffs where you're dealing with aircraft that are already taxiing and turning off or, or something like that, making that a little bit, the increasing the situational awareness there. Are those the kinds of things or, or is, is this something else entirely? No, that's exactly um, some of the use cases that we've been focused on. So I think you've actually touched on quite a few there. So digital towers in general, even before you apply AI, can have some benefits in terms of areas that are either difficult to see or completely invisible from a traditional control tower. So you can apply uh, camera arrays to areas which enables you to effectively look through buildings that are um, within the line of sight from the tower. But having done that, you've digitized that data. You can now apply AI models to it. So we've We've looked at and tested AI in terms of looking at the turn process. So when the aircraft is on stand and being serviced, there are key milestones within that, you know, from the baggage being unloaded, reloaded, catering, fueling, all those kind of items, which all have to progress before the aircraft's ready to go again. Those kind of events can be monitored by the artificial intelligence, and that's through the visual camera data and also through other system data that it's receiving, making calls on the basis of looking at all of that data, but actually being able to sort through which is the most appropriate to use right now. So that may well be that the visual overtakes, you know, sort of uh, other maybe manually input data from, from other sources. But one of the other cases that you spoke about with the runway, we've been testing that at Heathrow. We actually ran a, a test prior to the pandemic where we were looking at um, how we could enhance uh, the Heathrow operation. The Heathrow control tower, its physical control tower, is 87 metres tall. Uh, that means that the tower is one of the, well, it's the tallest in, in the United Kingdom. It's one of the tallest towers in Europe. And it goes into cloud, low cloud, before the operation requires us to go to the next stage, low visibility procedures, where you have to protect the ground landing aids, for example. So you're in, still in normal conditions, but basically the controllers have a restricted view because they're in cloud. This is quite common for a lot of major airports where they cover a large surface area or you know they have a tall tower or both, and Heathrow is, is both of those things. So in our normal operation day-to-day, -day, when we have that tower in cloud, we space the arriving aircraft further apart because what we're deploy using is a procedural control element where we, the controllers in the tower at Heathrow monitor the aircraft using ground radar. So the actual aircraft object that they are monitoring is a radar return. So that's not as, as high fidelity as, as looking at the aircraft out of the window of the tower because you get a, a blob on a radar screen. And also, it's only a one-second update. The radar you know, updates once every second. So you're looking at a slightly historic picture lower fidelity than looking out of the window. And so we increase the spacing between the arrivals just to provide us with an additional safety buffer so that by the time the aircraft can be confirmed as clearing the runway and its safety strip so that we can allow the next aircraft to land, it takes a little bit longer than it does by looking out the window. So if we can employ a visual observation of those exits 
in conditions where the tower controllers can't see, then that was our approach. So we have deployed, uh, in addition to the panoramic cameras, we've deployed additional cameras that overlook the runway exits, rapid exit taxiways off the north runway. And that then had an AI model trained to understand what the aircraft and particularly what it was looking for in terms of the tail of the aircraft, the tail fin clearing the safety strip. So what the AI model was trained to do quite rapidly was to give us two triggers, visual triggers that can be provided to the controller on out-of-the-window video display or alternatively on their radar displays. But basically, it provides them with a trigger to say, this event has occurred. The aircraft tail has cleared the runway safety strip. So because it's doing that based on visual data and the cameras are high-resolution, ultra-high 4K cameras, So they have massive amounts of pixels and the aircraft is looked at in terms of, you know, being hundreds of thousands of pixels. And it's looking for the last, very last pixel of that tail fin clearing a line, which is effectively a pixel thick. So this is even more accurate than a human controller can do looking out of the window normally. And it triggers an event to say that aircraft has now crossed this line, assuring safety that the next aircraft could land roll down the runway, and there is no chance of a wingtip to tail collision between those two, which is one of the key tasks that we're supplying. So that basically means that if we could prove that the system was capable of doing that routinely and to a high level of accuracy, which is what we analysed more than 40,000 arriving flights at Heathrow doing, and all sorts of uh, different conditions and day and night, daylight, darkness, different weather conditions, then we would be able to apply a normal final approach spacing. So not increased spacing, therefore reduced landing rate, but normal landing rates. So that would basically mean even in tower and cloud situations, we could continue to operate at the normal traffic levels, reducing delays that are impacted during that time, and to basically increase safety as well. Because as I say, the level of accuracy of it, when you're looking at the last pixel on the tail of an aircraft crossing a line that's only a pixel thick. Likewise, you know, that is incredibly highly accurate data that it's it's using. So that's our concept of operation. That's what we've um, tested and validated so far. The results of it were so positive that we actually decided that the next stage would be to look at low visibility operations, low visibility procedures, in fact, where we protect slightly further away from the runway center line because what you're looking to do is to avoid the tail fin interfering with the ground landing aid, the instrument landing system that the next arriving aircraft is following. So even though you apply slightly larger spacings for that, what we'd be looking at would be to try and just uh, tease those down just a little bit in order to, on the back of that high level of accuracy of the aircraft clearing that, that line and being able to do it when you're using camera data that's running at 25 to 30 frames per second. So, you know, up to 30 times faster than radar updates, but to pixel level of accuracy, not radar, you know, blip accuracy. So this, all of these things I've described previously as, as, you know, any high-performing team, and I, I see the Heathrow air traffic control team as, you know, a high-performing team. Those controllers, just like, I don't know, kind of the high-performing teams in whatever your sport may be, those teams never just take their day-to-day performance as being, you know, that's as good as it gets. They're always looking to try and get that little bit better, that little bit improvement to be able to do, you know, that perfect serve, that perfect goal, whatever it might be, more often and obviously in an air traffic control environment more safely. So what's the future of the digital tower? Is there a move to expand where the AI is is helping controllers? Is this something where you need fewer controllers per shift? Or is this something where you continue to find ways to incrementally increase the efficiency of the towers? And that's really where you're headed. There's a number of potential goals you could aim for. I think my focus, as I say, is is not so much from the aim to remove players from the field, but basically to get that performance more regularly assured and to as high a level as possible. Also to be able to, you know, looking at the effects just recently of the global pandemic, what we've certainly discovered is, you know, from that is the ability to dial down, dial up operations can actually be quite difficult, especially when you're you're set for 
high levels of, of you know performance and traffic delivery then it's suddenly removed and then it suddenly starts to come back again and you know you want to be able to operate just as well as you did despite the fact that you've not been able to um, you know sort of practice real live operations for for some time so all of that can actually be i think the use cases for future where you can sort of dial it down dial it straight back up again still operate then at, at uh, just as as effectively as you did you know sort of a few months before having had um, you know impacts i'm hoping that these you know, we don't see these impacts again, but it's these are use cases that we've never seen before. But actually, I think it, it is something quite relevant. Beyond that, I think the sky is the limit in terms of what you can do with this. The, the key for me is the digital tower. So that 70% of that analog data being digitized, being able to be integrated with other data systems on the airport, rather than them all being standalone, where a human operator, air traffic controller, or, you know, airport ops person, apron controller, where they have to look at different systems and effectively process this themselves. You know, that that integration just really helps in terms of reducing their workload and improving efficiency. But also, like I say, there, there are opportunities then to improve that because a human can only focus on one area at a time. We'll like to think we can multitask, but actually what we do is we, you know, our brain flits from one thing to the next. And we train controllers for an extensive period of time before they work on their own in order to get their scan from one place to the next to the next. With artificial intelligence and, you know, 360 degrees of coverage visually, visual camera data and integrated other data sources, that AI model uh, or AI models can basically be looking in all different directions simultaneously. So the controller can then be drawn to, you know, the point that the decision needs to be made. Because certainly humans, and I go back to those high-performing teams that we have in air traffic control, you know, Heathrow and, and other, you know, airports and ANSPs around the world, having the controller there to be able to make the right decision, but supported by the tool that's pointing them as to the where the, the next kind of area is that they need to put their attention to and provide the decision, that I think is a real game changer. goes from, from reliant upon a scan, waiting for the controller to scan back to that. Now, they'll do this quickly, but it's still, still not as quick as being done 25, 30 frames per second every minute of the day, you know, regardless of, of whether that person's been in the seat for five minutes or, you know, or 55 minutes it still is working to the same level and drawing their attention to what they need to do. So I think I think it's a real game changer. For me, digital towers, they're like the smartphone when it, it came on the market, suddenly opened up possibilities. Those applications that we started off with, we've got hundreds of applications now that run on that smartphone. And I think digital towers are effectively that smartphone integrating all of these data sources and basically um, you know, providing applications that are specific to the, the airport, you know, I, I don't have the same apps as you've got on your phone, I'm sure. We might share some, but basically they'll be specific to our type of, you know, whatever we're interested in. And so I, I see international hubs having probably very similar applications, smaller regional airports, perhaps maybe having some of those or maybe having specific ones to them. So I think we're on the cusp of something really quite new and innovative for aviation, and particularly for air traffic control at airports. Andy Taylor, the Chief Solutions Officer, Digital Towers at Nats. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. We now have time, for the first time in a couple of weeks, to talk about other stuff. And so let's just run through it and have a time with this. The first Boeing 737 MAX is off to the completion center in China, or the first one since the aircraft was recertified by China. November 245 Bravo Echo is the registration, and that is making its way, flew from Seattle down to Hawaii, Hawaii over to Guam, and then it'll go from Guam to the completion center in China. All so, right, progress. Uh, so things things are moving in the right direction on that front. Yeah, uh, a rare we win also, for Boeing. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they've gotten a couple in the past month or so. Arajet, a Dominican Republic-based low-cost carrier, ordered 20 firm orders and then 15 options for the 737-8200. So that that is the high-capacity, super-high-density, squeezy max um, that was designed with Ryanair in mind, and a number of other low-cost carriers have decided that they really like it too. Well, that's nice. That's certainly a region that could use some competition. Yeah, I mean that's uh, you know one of the regional breakdowns that, that is set for for some from some serious low-cost growth. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how the balance between low-cost and service, shall we say, is balanced. Hey, Norwegian is adding to its fleet. Hey, that's great. Remember uh, all those Max aircraft and a large chunk of the 73800NGs? They said, we don't need any more because we're bankrupt or whatever. Well, they've decided they want some of them back. Very exciting. <laughs> In total, they will be um, taking from AirCap 10, 10 new 73 MAX 8 and 8 73-800NGs. I'm assuming the NGs will be used. Of course, they're not producing those anymore. But it's interesting that the MAX 8s that Norwegian will be taking are new aircraft, it seems like, rather than taking back the MAX 8s they used to have, which are presumably somewhere, possibly still in Norwegian livery, ready to go right now. Yeah, that's the interesting thing is is they I mean the miracles of aircraft leasing they they have these aircraft with their paint on them but they're getting different aircraft. I mean it's it's uh, it's something. It makes sense, right? Yeah, somehow. It, it's only a matter of time until Norwegian gets its ambitions back and wants some 787s again. Oh boy. These time well, this when that time, time they, comes they may work. I don't know. Maybe they maybe they work yeah, this time. Sure. Sure. Kalula and Comair in South Africa are grounded due to a uh, – basically, they had a bunch of safety incidents. The regulator said, we should look in to see what's going on here. And when they did, they said, oh, no, you can't fly. For at least a few days. Yeah, and that's been kind of continuing on. So it'll be interesting to see if we learn what – the particular issues were it doesn't really say the discussion around why they're grounded. They found some serious safety lapses that they're working to fix in their risk and safety management systems, but until they do, they cannot fly. All right. Well, hopefully that gets cleared up quickly. And adding, I'm excited about this one because I'm going to add it to the Petchmoyer fleet for sure. The uh, Embraer has gotten in on the converted freighter craze that has been going on for the past year, year, two years, really since COVID necessitated the dedicated cargo market be much larger than it is. They will do an E-190 and an E-195 converted freighter. Well, that'll be interesting. Embraer says yeah. it's expected to enter into service early 2024, so not super close in, but not super far over the horizon. They say they see a market for this size of airplane of approximately 700 aircraft over 20 years, which is interesting because there's really no aircraft in this size for as a freighter right now. So that's stimulating a lot of demand that doesn't really seem to exist right now. I mean, or the aircraft that are currently operating are too big or too small for, for the market that they see. I think it could be interesting. I mean, there's certainly a market for quick shipping. I mean, we, we've seen you know this huge demand, and especially as e-commerce kind of figures out how to take advantage of air freight. I, I mean, I'm adding them to the Petchmoyer fleet. I have already said so. Yeah. I just think they're great planes. Might as well carry my stuff around. Yeah. Embraer says, and I quote, the EJET P2F conversions will deliver head-turning performance in economics. The EJET freighter will have Ooh. over 50% more volume capacity, three times range of large cargo turboprops, and up to 30% lower operating cost than narrow bodies. So it is kind of like a, a Goldilocks situation, bigger than a turboprop, smaller than a full-on narrow body. And there are a lot of E-190, E-195s coming 
off lease and being retired by airlines like JetBlue is, I think, by 2025 or six, preparing to retire its entire fleet of E-190s. So there's going to be a lot of these ready to be converted to freighters. I mean, I haven't run the numbers specifically, but I wonder if that 700, how much of the, the E-190 production line is that? Yeah, it's got it. I mean, there aren't the, that go many E-190s or E-195s out there, right? I mean, not. I think 700 would be a large number. But remember, the, the E-190 and E-195, though the E-1s, the, the version that we're talking about, are still in production. So I guess right. that counts for something. Unless they just roll them off the line new and immediately convert them to freighter. Does that count? I suppose. <laughs> sure. Seem, it seems like a lot of work, but but I suppose that counts. Yeah, you don't have to put the seats in, I guess. Let's completely switch gears and talk about some more bad news, at least as far as uh, Qatar Airways and Airbus are are concerned. The number of grounded A350s by Qatar is up to 22. That's not great. We don't really know not what great. The conditions are that necessitated grounding more of these aircraft, but we can safely assume it is more of the same that has thus far gone unresolved to the level that Qatar has wanted. Yeah. And remember that there's two levels of resolution here. One is the Qatar Airways satisfaction itself. And then the other is that these aircraft are technically grounded by the Qatari Civil Aviation Authority. So until they're satisfied, Qatar Airways couldn't, couldn't fly the planes either. I have a sneaking suspicion that when one is satisfied, the other will be as well, but there are technically two levels of satisfaction here. Yeah, and we don't seem to be gravitating any closer to uh, possible solutions. No. No. Quite the opposite. Yeah, the legal battle continues, but no changes on that front since we, we last addressed the fact that the court said that they that Airbus cannot yet fully cancel the order for 50 A321neos. On the brighter side of things, China Southern Airlines put into service the first A319neo. Hey, remember that? The extremely popular, much loved A319. No, the A319neo has 70 total orders. Which I'm sure they will never actually get to. The A320neo family, so the A319, A320, A321neo, and the 321neo variants, XLR, the whole neo family, 8,000 orders. So that is A319neo, roughly- A319neo, 70. What is that? Less than 1%? It's, yeah. It's less than 1%, it's less than 1%. Of, of all neos. Um, in this case, China Southern, they took two which were the two they had on order. It was a double delivery. They they may have more on order through leasing firms, but I have not found any in the Airbus documents. So it looks like these two aircraft are um, going to be extremely niche in their operations. There are probably some very high locations that China Southern is, is requiring these aircraft for. They did have some a319 operations with the CO that served airports like this, but they had more of those. Um, it seems like the the 320 Neo, the extra efficiency and capabilities of that aircraft, really negated the need almost entirely for the 319 Neo. Yeah, it's interesting that, that how, and we've talked about this before with other aircraft, where where you get an increase in performance on a base model, and it kind of wipes away some of the benefit of. The performance on other models that were necessary before to operate to certain airports. So I wonder how that's going to continue as we kind of increase the performance and efficiency of a lot of these aircraft, where you get to the point where do you need as many variants as you once did? I am looking forward to the A318 Neo. Oh, nope. Nope. See, just like that. Sorry. The 319 <laughs> killed off the 318. Now the 320 Neo killed off the 319 Neo. There you go. Tuway took delivery of its first Airbus A330, also its first wide body. And so it's its first wide body. It's its first A330 and it's its first Airbus aircraft. Yeah. They I think. have a, yeah, they have a fleet yeah. of, I think, just under 30, 737, 800s. 
I believe this aircraft was actually previously with AirAsia, so they are just throwing that uh, cabin back into service, which is also interesting. They'll have a business class cabin that they, they did not have previously. I love when little LCCs get a little frisky, start operating some random wide body operations like... Um, I flew Jin Air, had a small subfleet of 777s out in South Korea, and that was just fascinating because it's a very different experience than being stuffed on a uh, 737 or A320. It feels more premium, even though it's really the same product. Even though it's the same product, but wider. Right. Uh, I appreciate yeah. the extra wideness of that aircraft. I often appreciate the extra wideness. Yeah, but okay, let's go the other way. And the announcement this week that Delta is not going to refurbish the A350s it's taking from LATAM. And we'll keep that. I mean, basically, it's you're going to have a 50-50 shot at a really nice cabin or a okay cabin. Yeah, not so much a 50-50 shot, but these aircraft are being fixed on some routes that are less premium, let's say. Uh, some of the routes, I think it's out of Atlanta going down to South America. So some of those travelers will be very accustomed to this cabin. And the other is <laughs> Dublin, which is- It'll be it'll be like normal. Yeah. Atlanta, Dublin is not a premium heavy route, so it may not matter. But it, it's very interesting because Delta is a very consistency-focused airline. If, if you get on a 7.6 or a 7.5 or a 7.3 or an A330, the experience is typically extremely defined. You know what you're going to get. In this case, I guess there are just reasons that they don't have time or the ability to refurbish these aircraft with a much better business class cabin. I've heard all sorts of reasons from they need to put it in service this summer because travel demand is through the roof and they just want to put it in service to lead times for interior products like seats and entertainment systems and all that is like six years now because everything just takes forever to be delivered. Um, so whatever the case, it, it's surprising for an airline like Delta to not do that, but we've seen it happen in the past. Yeah, yeah. This is an issue that's unique to Delta. And to be honest, both of those explanations make perfect sense to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, taken by themselves and taken together, and especially doubly so. So I, I think that's you know a decision that certainly the it's not a bad decision for the airline. I just thought it was, you know, kind of interesting, especially like you said, given Delta's consistency focus on the inside of the aircraft. Let's close out with an interesting report that came out just yesterday. Well, today, I guess technically, in 2018. Th this comes from the Australian Transport Safety Bureau. In July of 2018, a Malaysia Airlines Airbus A330, registered 9MMTK took off from Brisbane and they were flying to Kuala Lumpur and they departed with the covers on the pitot tubes. Yeah, that's never good. Those are the things that tell the aircraft how fast it's going. And that is very important information and has, well, I guess directly or indirectly led to fatal crashes in the past. Yeah, they had no airspeed information during the takeoff roll. And after they had lifted off, the report says they had unrealistically low airspeed. The flight crew did not respond to the speed flag that the, the aircraft was saying, this is not good, bad airspeed, bad airspeed, didn't respond until it was too late to safely cancel the takeoff. So they climbed up to about 11,000 feet. They shut down some computers. They shut down the aircraft's air data systems. The report says that doing so activated the backup speed scale, and which uh, this aircraft happened to have installed. So it seems that not yeah. all, e either not all Airbus A330s or not all Airbus aircraft have this feature. It's good that this one did. Yeah, they used that airspeed management procedures and the air traffic controllers themselves helped safely guide the aircraft back to Brisbane. The pitot tubes are covered, especially in Brisbane, because wasp nest construction is a big problem there. So they were covered there, and then a chain of events where people did their jobs and then left because they had to go do other jobs. People didn't do the jobs that they were supposed to do, and there was poor communication between people doing and not doing their jobs. So, you know, one of the things where it's a huge confluence of events led to the covers not being removed before the aircraft moved or began to depart. And then poor communication between 
the captain who is the pilot monitoring and, and the first officer who is the pilot flying resulted in the aircraft actually taking off without airspeed readings. And so the report's actually really interesting because uh, I always I don't like reading Australian Transport Safety Bureau reports, but I find that their writing is always extremely thorough in why things happen. You know, kind of st- even stepping back, NTSB reports and UK AIB reports are, are all very, very good. But the Australian Transport Safety Bureau reports are always, I think, even more thorough because they explain all of the non-aviation stuff really well. Um, that kind of leads up to what happened, and then they go into why or the procedures or things like that. So if you're interested in the full report, we'll put a link in the show notes. I found it to be very uh, fascinating in how this all came together and very happy to report that the aircraft landed safely and has long since been in service. So uh, a rather interesting one. And, and I think it's you know another interesting thing to note. This happened in 2018. Yeah. So uh, the report just, the final report just came out. Well, they did say, and I quote, uh, this led the ATSB undertaking one of its most substantive and substantive and complex investigations in recent years. So they do even admit that such a simple thing of somebody left the covers on the tubes led to one of their most complicated investigations that they had gone through in years. And Australia is no stranger to having major incident investigations. So that says something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jason, I'm going to let you get back to your business in Nice, and I hope you have a a good rest of the trip. Thanks for making the time. I I know it's it's late in the evening there, so I'm going to wish you a, a wonderful evening. Everyone listening, thank you so much. We've gotten some really good feedback, both constructive and positive over the last couple of weeks. So we're thankful that so many people have been listening to the shows and have learned along with us about what's happening in the world and how that's affecting commercial aviation. If you do have any other questions or anything about the Ukraine and Russia situation or, or anything generally, always just email us at podcast at fr24.com. We'll read those. And if we can put something together that answers your questions, we'll do that. And if we can't, we'll we'll let you know that you've you've indeed stumped us. But until then, thank you all so much for listening. This has been episode 155 of Avtalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. 